celebrate with you because we are made in your image. That was a great idea. This morning, we want to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for those 33 years on our planet that gave us a picture of who you are, God, and what you like to do and what you care about. We needed that, and we still do. Jesus, you are so big and so beyond, and we are so small with our love for certainty and putting everything into boxes and persuading people that we are right. Jesus, you throw this big wrench into our life of religion and remind us that there is more mystery and more unknown, and there is so much that we just don't get. And so as we, the people of Forest View, live in our community and in our networks of people, God, please burn the image of Jesus in our hearts and mind. May we, the people of Forest View, be the friends of sinners. May we be accused of hanging with the wrong crowd. May those on the edges of society find their home with us. Imagine that. May we not care one whit about power and money and success, and may we toss aside whatever rules religion holds us to so that we can firmly hold on to Jesus. God, don't let us grow weary of loving our neighbor because it's so simple. Really, love your neighbor, and we can act like perfect Pharisees and totally miss the point. We would rather tithe our herbs or steady church growth or just be nice people. We think we're too smart for something as simple as loving our neighbor. Or maybe because it's so blasted hard to love our neighbor, we want to quit. For something that sounds so simple when we actually start God, we realize the depth of our sinfulness and how hard it really is. Really, isn't there another great commandment? But no. And we don't want to, God. This is how we want to spend our lives, by loving you and loving our neighbor. And just like the prophet Micah said, we want to act justly and to love mercy. God, we want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And whatever Jesus might have looked like in modern-day Halton, this is what we want. May our sons and daughters prophesy. May our young people see visions. May our old people dream dreams. May all of us reflect the likeness and loveliness of Jesus. This morning, open our hearts, God. Quiet our minds. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here this morning. Come. Together we pray. Amen. Good morning, Force You. As Elizabeth mentioned, my, my name is Paul, and I'm going to be preaching this morning on the subject of humility as part of our series on reflecting perfection, seeking to be like Christ in our lives. And this morning, we're going to look at this uh, subject of humility. Humility is, in fact, a tough thing to get our heads around, I believe. It's based upon this premise that we are not that important. 
And we don't necessarily like to hear that. It doesn't feel that nice to think that we don't matter. When I saw this sign outside a, uh, a school in my neighborhood, I thought, you know, we're kind of okay. These uh, terms love and pray have some acceptance. We, they have some currency. Add eat to it, and you've got a bestseller. But I'm not so sure about humble. I'm not sure that we like this idea of being humble. Humility is a stranger to us. And why is that? Why is humility to us a stranger? Well, I believe it's because we are told to self-promote. It's all about, in our life, in our world, self-promotion. We live in a competitive world, and we need to stand out and above a crowd. So, I have a side hustle, as my son Gabriel calls it. It's all above board. I work at the church, but I have this other job. I teach college at Sheridan. Uh, at Sheridan College, I teach social work students. And what I do is I prepare them for their field placement. And as part of preparing them for their field placement, I bring in a colleague from the Career Centre who comes in and talks to them about resumes and crafting the perfect resume and cover letter. And you can probably imagine what she tells them. What does she tell them? She says, you have to stand out. It's going to be 100 resumes on that field placement supervisor's desk, and you have to promote yourself. You have to show them that you're the best. You're the most worthy. You are the one that she wants or he wants to hire. And that's all good advice. We want our students to stand out. We want uh, the placement supervisor who's hiring them for a placement to, to recognize their skills and their abilities. We don't want spelling errors and punctuation errors and formatting errors in their resumes. But the concern, and my concern, is that this is the beginning of as students achieve success, pride and arrogance creeping into their lives, getting a toehold in their lives. In an essay on pride and humility, humility uh, written on the, and posted on the C.S. Lewis Institute website, the writer says, pride and arrogance are conspicuous among the rich, the powerful, the successful, the famous, and celebrities of all sorts, and even some religious leaders. <laughs> Go figure. And it is also alive and well in ordinary people, including each of us. Humility, on the other hand, is often seen as weakness, and few of us know much about it or pursue it. For those who've been around uh, Force you for a number of years, you'll know that yesterday was the anniversary of Matt Stone's passing. Matt Stone, uh, if you don't know Matt, was a young man who grew up in this church um, and died of complications of cancer four years ago. Matt was the epitome of humility. And uh, if there's one story that I can remember that stands out in my mind, it's the story that Mike, his father, shared at his funeral. And in the story, and I, and I knew the essence of the story, but I was foggy on the details, so I talked to uh, Sharon, his mom, yesterday to, to understand it a bit better. But in this story, Matt was um, part of a basketball team, and he was to get on a bus and travel on the bus to the other school to compete in this basketball game. But he called his dad, and he said, Dad, I want to ride to the game. And his dad was a little confused by this, like, why wouldn't you get on the bus? And so he showed up at the school. He sees the team and the guys coming out of the, out of the school, and the, kind of the camaraderie that they were enjoying with each other and getting onto the bus. And then his son comes out, Matt. 
And he's wondering, what's going on? Why aren't you part of this? You're missing out on all of this. But he has this other boy along with him. And so they drive him to the game. Mike drives him to the game, drops him off. He goes to the game. And then the rest of the story is that Matt's mom, Sharon, picks him up after the game. And the same thing. Matt comes with this other boy into the backseat of the car and they drive him home. And Sharon says that she was listening to the conversation between Matt and this other boy. And Matt was encouraging this other boy in his game. This boy was feeling down about himself, dejected about himself, and he was encouraging him. And so Sharon was asking him about it afterwards, like, what was going on? What's the story here? And Matt said, don't you remember, Mom? This is the boy whose dad committed suicide and whose mom is in jail. This boy didn't belong. He didn't feel like he could be part of the, the team. He didn't feel like he could go on the bus. And so Matt sacrificed that experience to ride with him in his car. He chose the humble route of giving up his own desires and his own needs for the, for the needs of this other boy. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less often. In this situation, Matt was not thinking of, him own, of his own self, but he was thinking of the needs of this other boy in this particular situation. There's another great definition of humility. If, you've, if you're counting, that's your third definition of humility this morning. One from Elizabeth and two from me. This one is from Jonathan Christ. I'm going to say the name, Chrysostom. He's an early church father. I may have just botched his name, but he was an early church father. And he said that humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue. I do love this definition, although the word virtue I, I kind of struggle with. It kind of, for me, has this feel of morality uh, and, you know, this idea of superiority. And I wonder if we understand, if it's helpful, if you're like me and you're kind of struggling with this idea of moral superiority. It's not that. If we understand that the great Christian virtues, according to the Apostle Paul, are faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of these is love, then you can substitute the word love for virtue. And what you'll understand is that in order to fully love, we need humility, because humility is the life, gives life to love. Humility nurtures love. Humility is the foundation upon which you build love. Humility bonds it together. Humility makes love possible. Speaking of love, I hear there was a wedding yesterday. I didn't watch it. I kind of knew it was coming. I knew there was someday Harry and Meghan were getting married. Uh, but on Friday, I couldn't escape that it was happening the next day, yesterday, because it was in the news, right? I heard this interesting statistic. I don't know who gathers this stuff, but they said that 70% of young men under the age of 34 from Western Canada have no interest in the royal family. And when I heard that, I thought, yeah, I'm one of those guys. And when I was that age, I was one of those guys living in Western Canada. Now, I'm not a royal hater. I'm just not all that engaged in the royal family. But I did like seeing the pictures, and I loved this piece about Bishop Curry, that powerful, fiery gospel sermon that he preached. I thought that was amazing, heard by millions of people around the world. That was 
That's powerful. But you got to admit, there wasn't a lot of humility in this wedding. It wasn't a humble ceremony, necessarily. I heard that it cost the British taxpayers $40 million. Interestingly, I was yesterday morning, I was reading a chapter from an old Philip Yancey book, and Philip Yancey was talking about royal visits, you know, when the queen gathers all her belongings, all her stuff, and her entourage, and goes and visits another country. It cost that host country $40 million to bring the queen over. That was in 1999, before heightened security. Not a lot of humility there's a, around the royal family in that sense. Jesus, if he had gotten married, his wedding would not have looked like that. When Jesus traveled around the countryside, it didn't cost the host villages hundreds of millions of dollars. There wasn't a lot of pomp and ceremony around Jesus. Paul had this, uh, when we think about the posture of Christ, the posture of Christ is humility. Consider his birth in a backwater town to a peasant parents. His baptism, big points in his life, his baptism, who baptized him? John the Baptist, this sort of marginalized radical who ate and lived off of milk and honey, this unusual kind of crazy guy out in the wilderness. What about his great teaching on leadership, his great moment to demonstrate leadership? What does he do at the Passover, the final supper? He gets on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. And think about his death, the crucifixion, the humility, the shame around his death, carrying his own cross, hanging between two thieves naked. Paul the Apostle, I'm sure, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, had all of this in mind. All of this in mind when he writes to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he, had to the, that he had to cling to the advantages of status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. Became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Humility is, my friends, the posture of Christ. And your question might be, well, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. It sounds great, but in this world of self-promotion that gets us places, how do we reconcile humility with the real world? How do we reconcile this with our desires for advancement, our desires for status, our desire to be known and to promote ourselves? And that is a fair question, and it's a question that we need to wrestle with. And the consequences of humility may give us pause. We may not want this for ourselves. We may not want it for our kids. We may want our kids to be with the popular group jumping on the bus with the rest of their teammates. Humbling ourselves could be costly in the workplace. It could be costly in the community. It could be costly in other ways. And what God promises around this is that this worry is short-sighted. Our worry about the cost of humility is short-sighted. If we go back to that passage in Philippians, 
we'll see that Paul continues by saying that because of that obedience, the obedience of Jesus to go to the cross, that humility of the cross, because of his obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before, before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all, to the glorious honor of God the Father. James, when he writes in his little book, James, in chapter 4, verse 10, says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Jesus himself says that blessed are the poor in spirit. There are promises that come with humility. There are promises that we will be exalted and lifted up. But these are future promises. These are kingdom promises. They are not immediate promises. They are promises that will be fulfilled in the time to come. When it comes to the rewards of humility, we need to take a long view. But even as I say that, I'm going to kind of contradict myself here. Not really, but I think there's a nuance to this that, we, that is also help us to, uh, helpful for us to understand. Because humility within our life together, our life together as a community, or in any of our relationships, when we practice humility, we have the potential to bear the reward of peace, of joy, of satisfaction, of renew and restored relationships. Let's go back again to this passage in Philippians 2. Understanding that prior, in, in the few verses prior uh, to this eloquent uh, piece that Paul wrote, he is encouraging the community, the church that he's writing to, he's encouraging them to live in humility, in community with one another. He says, have encouragement, experience, in, in, as you live and practice humility with one another, you will experience encouragement, you will experience comfort and affection and sympathy. For Paul, it's in humility that we can experience the benefit of relationships. So if we're talking about restored relationships, humility is, is, is essential. Humility will lead to restore the restoration and, and the reconciling of relationships. It's essential. And if we're thinking about restored relationships, there's no better story to think about than the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. In the prodigal son, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the story. We have a son who demands his share of the family estate and squanders it on reckless living. He gathers, all of a sudden, a group of friends who want him only for his money, and when the money is gone, the friends are gone. And he is now living and working in a pigsty, feeding the pigs, you know, subsiding on the food of the pigs. And when he comes to his senses and he says, why do I need to, what's the point of being so, so desolate? If I could just return to my father, I could at least have it as good as, as, good as the servants who work for my father. And so he rehearses a speech, and he returns to his father. But before he can even give his speech, he receives this compassionate welcome from his father that custom says he did not deserve. Custom says he didn't deserve that response from his dad. The extravagant gesture of throwing a feast for his son and killing the fattened calf is as outrageous as the son's act was selfish. What the father did in response to the son was outrageous. 
the father was surely viewed as senseless by others, perhaps viewed as someone throwing good money after bad, putting on a feast for his wayward son. Michael Knowles is a professor at McMaster Divinity in Hamilton, and he says that although the younger son had done everything in his power to break his father's heart, in the end, he fails to do so, for he discovers that his father is willing to bear more shame, to bear more sorrow, and to bear more loss than the son is able to inflict. The father humbles and shames himself for the potential of a renewed relationship with his son. So thinking about the prodigal son and thinking about the story of the, the place and the role of the father in this powerful story, I want us to understand two things. And the first is that humility is relinquishing anger for compassion. Letting go of anger for compassion. The father of the prodigal son had every reason to be angry for his son. His son had squandered his inheritance. He had been reckless with his life and with his money. And upon his son's return, he could have refused him. He could have seen him coming and said, no way. I don't trust you anymore. You have no place in my family. He could have said that to his son. Or he could have gone and agreed to his son's terms and said, okay, you can come back, but you are no more than a servant in my, in my household. You can be a servant, but no more than that. That would have been justified. That would have been a justified response by everyone who is observing this around him. But instead, he chooses the humbling route of compassion. He receives his son back in this powerful way. And the question is, perhaps for us, there is a situation where we have been hurt or we have been offended, and rather than responding in anger, we need to demonstrate compassion towards the person that has hurt us. We need to require of ourselves a humility that to others may look foolish. Even acknowledging to someone that you've been hurt requires a measure of humility. It says to, uh, to the other that you are not a fortress. It says we have emotions and feelings and we can be hurt. Pride and arrogance doesn't allow us to say that easily. Pride and arrogance doesn't allow us to acknowledge that we have been hurt by someone. To restore a broken relationship says that you, says to the other person, you and our relationship is more important than my sense of pride and self-respect. So you can see how difficult this is. In a book that uh, my wife Elizabeth and I are reading called Love Big, Be Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, collection, of, um, it's a collection of letters written by a pastor in a small town to his congregation. And in one of these letters, we're introduced to two characters. One is James and one is Hank. James um, is the father in this story. Hank in the story is a young man, college student, returning home for a weekend, needing to have a, have, have a conversation with his dad. And, oh no, I think I lost my page. My bookmark is sitting on the, uh, on the floor there. Here it is. So I'm going to read to you a portion from the, from the story here. Hank is, uh, again, so Hank is the, is the son in this. He's an adult son. And he's speaking to his dad. His dad is described as a very serious, uh, somber Christian man. Very devout in his faith, but very serious. And Hank says, uh, given this, you can see why Hank had been afraid to tell his dad 
during a weekend break from college that he was no longer sure he believed in God. After he helped his dad with morning chores, the two sat at the kitchen table with big cups of coffee. With great trepidation, Hank told his dad what he was pondering and the opinions he had begun to form. I couldn't look dad in the eye, Hank recalled. I didn't know whether his response would be fury or sadness. But either way, I didn't want to see it. After a moment or two, James drew a deep breath. Well, that's a lot to carry, Hank. How long have you felt that way? I'm not sure, Hank answered. Maybe a year. James, the father, sighed gently, as if he were releasing some pain from his body. Then he drained the bottom of his cup. Well, I guess you know most everything I would say to you, right? Hank couldn't hold back the grin. Yes, I, I think I do. All right, then, the father says. Well, I love you. I love you no matter what you believe. James, the father, in this situation, valued his relationship and the continuing and the restoring of his relationship with his son more than he valued being right. It was an act of humility on his part to listen to his son confess and to accept it and to bear it without maybe responding in his natural way with anger or trying to convince him and argue with him about why he was wrong. So humility is relinquishing anger for compassion. James's response to his son was an act of compassion. The story carries on and it says Hank tells, because Hank's reflecting back when he tells the story, that as an adult, an older adult, in his returning to faith, this was a pivotal piece for him, the way his father responded to him. That act of compassion was pivotal as he eventually returned, returned to Christ, as he returned to, to belief in God and following God. So humility is relinquishing anger for compassion. It is also relinquishing power, control, and certainty for uncertainty. We're never explicitly told in the story of the prodigal son that the father was wealthy, but the father was wealthy. Look, why else would the son want his inheritance, and how else could he go and gather a group of people and squander it? The father had something. The father had resources. How else could the father... Um, accept the returning son with this special ring and put it on a big feast and killing the fattened calf. He had land, he had servants, he had resources. The father had wealth, and with wealth, he would have had power and a perceived sense of control and certainty, and he sacrificed all that. He relinquished it for the uncertainty of receiving his son back. By receiving his son back, he entrusted his son with riches, a ring, a feast, this is a son who squandered everything and he entrusted him with his riches. He entrusted him again with this. Why would he do that? That's crazy. It doesn't make sense. He was risking the relationship with his older son. The noble, trusted son. The one who did no wrong. The one who looked down in judgment upon his dad for the way that he was treating the wayward and prodigal son. He was... He was risking that relationship with the son that he could trust in order to receive the son who he couldn't trust. He was risking his own reputation. What would the neighbors think? What would his servants think? He risked all of that in an act of humility by choosing love 
over power. He is humbly accepting uncertainty because he doesn't know what the response is going to be. He doesn't know how his son is going to treat him. He doesn't know what his older son is going to think. He doesn't know what his neighbors are going to think. But he says that in humility, this is more important. I'm going to accept the uncertainty that comes with restoring this relationship. So what is it? What is it in our lives that we like to hold on to and control? What do we have control over that we don't want to relinquish? What do we have power over that we don't want to let go of? One thing that comes to mind in our busy lives is our schedule. We don't want to give God our schedule. We want to control that. We want to micromanage our days and our weeks and our months. We want to say, this is ours. I'm going to look after it. At Next Door, our ministry center in Aldershot, we invite people to come down and serve with us. And we even make it kind of easy. I'm not saying that lightly. I, 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 for those who come down and serve, they sacrifice their time. But we say, you can come down at this time, at this day, over these hours. And we make it accessible, and it's valuable, and we know that it's transformative for those who, who come down and serve, has that potential for God to do a work in their lives, and we know it has an impact on the lives who we serve. But if you speak to Angie, what she would say is, what we really need is people who are willing to say, I'm there to walk along and journey with people who are suffering and who are broken. I'm willing to take a phone call at 2 o'clock. I'm willing to show up here or there when someone needs help cleaning out their apartment because children's aid is coming tomorrow and I'm at risk of losing my child. I'm willing to spend a day with that. That's what we need. That's what it means to say, I'm willing to give over to God and trust the Spirit with my schedule. And not that... Next door is the place where we all might serve. But I wonder, for all of us, if there are um, ways that we need to relinquish control of our schedule so that the Holy Spirit might work in our lives and we could, and in the way that, and that we might recognize the way the Spirit is working around us and we might be able to step into and have space and margin to step into these situations that are happening around us. My daughter, Alexandria, my oldest daughter, and this is a bit of a dad boast moment, uh, just graduated from a discipleship program in Edmonton. And uh, as she was reflecting on her year, um, she had an opportunity to do this, giving the graduation address to her fellow students. So this program that she was part of had a, um, had a big service uh, component to it. It had a, it had a requirement that for Alex and all the students that they were going to go down and serve in multiple places week after week, uh, time after time. And so for Alex, she was serving in a large community, a, a group home, which is a group home for adults with intellectual disability. She was serving at a homeless shelter. She was in the inner city. She was serving at a, at a, um, at a kids club, a weekly kids club. And if you contrast those experiences of week after week going down the weekly grind of of doing this with some of her other experiences because in that program they would also do travel. They would travel, they traveled to inner city Vancouver and they traveled to a northern reserve in northern Alberta. She's currently in Thailand. And although of course there would have been challenges and there would have been a grind to those service opportunities, they're also a bit more exciting, right? Because it was travel, it was working together in community. But as she was reflecting on her experience on the uh, the weekly 
going down and serving at these same places with these same people. She said, with each of these opportunities, I was able to grow and learn. Serving wasn't always fun or exciting, but it was always a good reminder that my time and schedule in the end isn't about me. I wonder for ourselves, is it possible that we are not willing to relinquish our schedules to God? Do we control them so tightly, doing things and good things? Good things, my friends, I'm not saying anything other than that. But do we control them and pack them so tightly that we don't have room for the Spirit to move around us and move in our lives and call us into places that we need to go, that God needs us to go? Does accepting uncertainty mean relinquishing control of our calendar to create margin for the unexpected, to enter into the life of someone that God is bringing our way? Humility is the way of Jesus. It offers no promises of success and accomplishment in this world. In fact, it may feel like a threat to those things. Yet when, when, yet when in humility we relinquish anger and control, it offers the promise of renewed and restored relationships in our life together and in all of our relationships. Humility is a path of descent, but it holds the promise of, of fulfillment that the world doesn't offer. In our closing, and as an introduction to our communion, I'm going to read a poem. This is a poem by a poet named Malcolm Ginty. Uh, he's a British poet, and it's called Descent. And it's about the story that we really reflected on earlier of God descending in humble fashion to be with us. And he writes it contrasting the, uh, the story of Jesus with the other gods of the time, the other gods that would have been known and compared to. As I read this, it'll be our closing prayer. And so at the conclusion of it, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and lead us in communion. Descent. They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown. For lofty pride aspires to rise, but you came down. You dropped down from the mountain's sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood and sacrifice. Their victims on an altar bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born. Born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all, astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall, and strong to save. Amen.
Whenever you're ready, the elements have been placed on tables around the room. Feel free to get up and, and receive. Of peace when 